Welcome to the Propreneur Podcast, where we help practice owners become better entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Dino Watt. And once again, welcome everybody to the Propreneur Podcast. Excited to have you here again today, as we always do bring you the best practices possible for you and your practice. There's sometimes where I'm bringing you special, even more special guests than are just in our silo of the orthodontic or dental space. I'll bring in the authors or the experts from outside of our space so you can learn from their expertise. And I know as a community, we have often talked about reference to uh, the book Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. I've recommended everybody go to watch the actual mastermind. And today we have a very special treat because we have one of Chris's business partners, also a negotiator who has so much to teach us and share with us that today we have Derek Gaunt on, who is the author of Ego, Authority, Failure. And if you aren't, if you are driving home right now, I'm going to suggest you actually pause. Pause right now so that you can get home and sit down and take notes for this conversation because I got to tell you, I've read through the book one and a half times now. I haven't even told Derek that yet, but one and a half times I've, I've gone through the book. I've taken notes. I've been able to implement a few of the things already, and I know you're going to want to do that too. So before we get started with that, Derek, I just want to say thank you again for being a part of our show and welcome. Thank you. I appreciate the invite and I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. You know, anytime that we can on this show get uh, people who are true experts in their field and can give our doctors a different perspective than what the you know the jar they're sitting in every single day. It's it's a pleasure, and I always start the show off by asking people what's their story. And so, if you can, in a kind of succinct manner, tell us how you got started in this world of negotiation. Did you something you always wanted to do? Did you fall into it? Tell us that. Yeah. Uh, so. I started my career in law enforcement in 88 um, and I started like everybody else starts. I was pushing a patrol car up and down the street. But at the time, um, there was the, the scourge of crack cocaine was mm-hmm. in its heyday. And so we as as a community, law enforcement community, uh, we knew we had to take very aggressive steps in order to curb uh, not only the the selling of the drug, but the violence that was associated with it. So 18 months, I pushed a patrol car up and down the street, and then I uh, applied for a street-level narcotics enforcement unit. Plain clothes, we were in beat-up old cars, and and we would jump out on, on drug dealers and drug buyers. And wow. then, we, then we would have to interview them. And I learned through trial and error and some training that I could say specific things in a specific manner to elicit a specific response from the person that I was dealing with. And of course, once I figured out I could do that, I wanted to, to take it to the next level. So I became a, a detective and now I'm, I'm, I'm doing this on a regular basis. And I knew that there was another level and that level was hostage negotiation. So in 97, I applied for a spot on the team. Uh, 2001, I got promoted to sergeant, took over team leadership responsibilities. 2004, I got promoted to the rank of lieutenant. I took over command of the team. And that's the spot that I remained in up until I actually left in in 2014. So I've spent the better part of my adult life using my wow. interpersonal communication skills to influence the behavior of other people. And, you know, Chris and I met when he was still with the Bureau in 2001 we became fast friends because we were obviously in the same in the same discipline. So when he left the bureau in 2007, 
2008, 2009, he called me up and said, I got this wacky idea and I'd like, you, I'd like you to come along for the ride. And we haven't looked back. Well, one of the things that's fascinating about that is it sounds like every time you up the level from being uh, even just pushing the car, you know, driving the patrol car. So my father was a police officer. My brother is in corrections. My other brother is the federal uh, probation officer for the state of Utah. Like mm-hmm. I, all my family is law enforcement. So first of all, thank you so much for your service and for being willing to do that, especially in today's environment, right? Like yeah. it's it's not, it's super hostile. It's it's sad. And uh, I just like hats off to you for doing that. I'm, I'm, you're, you're with the black swan. I'm, with, I'm the black sheep of the family. I didn't go into law enforcement. <laughs> so, so uh, what I was going to say is that it seems like every time you upped it up the level, the level of intensity and seriousness also gets leveled up. I mean, you, when you're talking hostage negotiation, it's literally people's lives. So yeah. you got to have some confidence in your ability to have a conversation with somebody. You got to have confidence in your training as well. Yeah. You gotta, in my, one of my mentors, that was his mantra, stick to your training. Your training is not going to fail you. Wow. Even if you're struggling with execution, your training will not fail you. Just stick to your training. That was that was a great takeaway from him. I kept it at the forefront of my mind every time that I went out. And, and um, it takes the pressure off of me because, you know, I've got a template. I've got options that I can choose from, recognize which ones are important for what situation is the challenge. Well, that's what's, that's really fascinating. I told you before in the, in the pre-show that sometimes I'll just like ask questions based upon where I think the person listening is going to want to listen. You know, that's very fascinating because as you, as we're going to go through some of the stuff that you talk about in the book, you know, there are specific ways to have that conversation where we're talking about, you know, whether you're doing an uh, accusation audits or mirroring and labeling and I, and I mm-hmm. talk about this with my clients when it comes to having crucial conversations, even with their, with their team members, right? Because there's a right. hostage situation going on there, right? In some way, shape or form. And sometimes it's really hard for them to not to go back to the default, to do that like, oh, this isn't working. I'm going to switch out to this. Or I'm not, I don't really trust that thing is working. How did you get yourself conditioned to really believing this stuff because some of the stuff that you talk about and i'm sure some of the stuff you were taught doesn't quote seem natural although it's effective um well the first thing you have to do is you you got to get your repetitions in this oh, is you're, right. lear- you're learning a foreign language this is a foreign yeah. language um the people within your community they have been doing what they've been doing for decades they've been talking the way they've been talking for decades and what we espouse at the Black Swan Group is that you modify it, you change it. So you're learning that, that foreign language. And those of you who have learned a language other than your native tongue, think about those first days yeah, it's true. and how difficult it was. And so that's the biggest challenge is, is sticking to your guns as far as repetition is concerned. You don't have to be negotiating a, a multi-million dollar deal to get the skill work in. Right. I want you to go and, and use the skills at Starbucks when you're ordering your coffee. I want you to go use the skills with the person um, located in the super, or at the supermarket checking you out. That's where you get your repetition and that's where you get your practice and that's where your confident level starts to rise yeah. and you become more efficient. And the more, the more efficient you become, the more confidence you get and it just starts to feed on itself. I got to tell you, that's been the fun part. It's actually been fun. You talk about in the book, even about the different types of repetition, like don't expect to be successful the first time or third time or 13th time, right? You have to put Mm -hmm. those reps in, like you said, 
but it's actually been some fun stuff. Uh, getting to no answers instead of yes is something yeah. I'm doing all the time. And it's so cool because you have this little smirk. I have a little smirk in the back of my head when somebody goes, well, no, that'd be fine. It's like, oh, it totally worked. Like, yeah. <laughs> just to be able to yeah. use that. It's really yeah, so good stuff. It's like seeing a unicorn for the first time. Yeah. You know, I, Chris and I said, hey, if you look behind that tree over there, there's a unicorn. And you go over and you look behind the tree, i.e. use the skill, and you see the unicorn, you can't wait to see it again. Yeah, um, it's totally true. I'm continually amazed at what people will agree to by saying no. Yeah, that it's That they wouldn't otherwise do it. Okay, so I told you before, I have so many questions, and then I, I mean, we could spend a lot of time on this. Let's get back to a couple of things I want to ask. I actually want to go a little bit from the back of the book to the beginning. Okay. Uh, but before I get to that first one, because I want to talk about the five levels of listening, which is something I think is really important for, I mean, you talk about it, it's, I think, in one of the last chapters of the book, and yet it's really important for, I think, so many people to think about when it comes to communication. But before we get to that, I want to ask you an important question for you, hopefully that we can kind of get a little insight into your brain. Why this book? Why now? Yeah. So, um, emotional intelligence and leadership is not a new concept or idea. It's a bit, it's been written about ad nauseum over the past 40 years or so. And very few, there's very little material out there that goes beyond the generic, you know, created a collaborative environment. Be nicer to your direct reports. <laughs> be transparent. Be open. Be honest. Show some empathy. You know, all of those are touted as being crucial, and they are for leadership success, but nobody or very few people have told you how to do it. Yeah. How do you demonstrate that level of empathy? How do you show that level of transparency? How do you build rapport? establish trust-based influence, and then ultimately get them to do what you ask them to do, not because you said so, but because they're willing. Yeah. And so that's that was the motivation behind this. I wanted to take a look at what makes a good leader effective, what makes a bad leader toxic, mm. and show what both sides of that coin look like, and then provide some actionable skills that you can use to put you in the camp of the former. And I got to tell you, for me, that's one of the reasons why both of these books, uh, your book, like I said, one and a half times going through it, because I, uh, and I'll finish the second, I'll finish the second time through, but uh, it's because it really, I, I study a lot of human behavior. I like to help my doctors be able to communicate better with their team members and lead better. And to be able to go to them and not just say, like you said, kind of almost a, a, super, a superlative of like, eh, be nicer, uh, be kinder. It's like, no, 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 this is exactly how you do it. Because like when you talk about, there's a huge difference between having empathy and having tactical empathy. Yes. And that's powerful stuff there. So I yes. love it. I'm, I, when we talk about ego, authority, and failure, one of the things that I really appreciated in the book is you, taught, you say a few times that it's important in your leadership position to have an ego, to have authority, but it's actually almost, it kind of sometimes becomes this tipping point when you talk about the examples of whether it be in the military or in uh, the negotiation world, that it tips over to the, the toxicity, the failure part. So let's talk about that toxic leadership and, and how you see mm -hmm. that tip over so often. Um, it tips over because ego and authority are intoxicating. 
Mm. They're seductive and they feed off of one another. Um, and, and it tips over when people lose sight that uh, they have a responsibility for those under their charge. And they want, they being the leader, want respect and they fail to realize that a prerequisite to you getting that respect is showing that respect. Yeah. And, and it's hard for people to get their minds around the concept that it's not about you. Yes, you have to be authoritative at times. Yes, you have to make split the second decisions without input from your direct reports. Yes, when the enemy is inside the wire and you're passing out the last rounds of ammunition, your ego and authority should be front and center. The problem with that is the enemy isn't always inside the wire and you're not always passing out the last rounds of ammunition and the toxic leader can't differentiate between the two. Um, and there's a variety of reasons for that. Some, some may have been promoted too quickly. Um, some may have seen that as a style that they wanted to emulate and it becomes a systemic problem within the organization because they think that's how people get ahead. There are a variety of reasons, but the bottom line is they're more focused on their professional survival and reputation than they are um, about the people who, who report to them. I would even, I love that. And I, I, uh, when I was reading this, you know, I'm thinking of a ton of our doctors, most of our doctors, they really are wanting to serve the people of their patients, right? To straighten their teeth or to correct their, their, their bite or whatever. That sometimes uh, I have this training that I do around relationships that the most important relationship is the one with yourself because you got, you can't get from an empty cup, but then I'll often ask, so who's the second most important relationship in your business? And they'll typically say the patients because the patients have the money. And I'll say, well, actually, the second most important patient is your team. Because if you can't mm -hmm. count on your team to do it, if they don't count on you, if they don't trust you, then they're not going to treat your patients as well as you want them to. You take care of the team and they'll take care of the patients. So in the same idea here with this ego, it is important to know who you are and that you're capable of doing what you do. And yet you have to be able to lean on those team members as well. So mm -hmm. let's talk about the five levels of listening real fast, because I thought this was really a fascinating piece to kind of tie it all in together uh, towards the end of your book that I use this saying often, are you listening to understand? Or are you listening to respond? This takes that right. to a whole nother level. Right, 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 right. So um, the five levels, generally speaking, are intermittent listening. That's at the bottom level. Rebuttal listening is the second level. Um, logic is, is the next level, emotion and logic, and then listening at an empathetic level. That's the deepest level of listening. That's where you need to be in order to demonstrate to the other side that you get their perspective, that you understand the lay of the land as they see it. I don't care who it is. It's a patient. It's a vendor. It's one of your direct reports. It's, it's your a colleague. Spouse. It's your spouse. People want other people to understand how they feel, what they're going through, what yeah. their circumstances are. It's the cheapest and most effective concession that you can make one person to another. Empathetic listening is very difficult to do. It takes total focus. Cognitively, you're burning energy when you're in that state, which is why my, most of us don't do it, right? 
most of us operate around levels one and two, mm -hmm. intermittent listening and rebuttal listening throughout the course of the day. Mm -hmm. It's easier to do. Intermittent listening where you're listening long enough to get the gist of what the other person's saying and then you refocus on your own internal monologue. Or rebuttal listening where you're listening long enough until they say something you know you can argue with and now you just want them to shut up long enough so you can jump into the conversation to tell them how dumb you are. That's where most of us do our dancing. Listening at an empathetic level is understanding meaning, worldview, symbolism, why it's important to them. It takes a lot of energy. It's exhausting. The key is not to operate at that level 24 hours a day, seven days a week because you can't do it. The key is to be able to operate that level when the conversation is of import. Mm -hmm. when, when you know that there are negatives espoused by the person on the other side, that's when you need to get into that deeper level of listening. And so right. those are the five levels. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. One of the things I loved about that, and I think even what you're saying here is I talk often about being present with people, like really being present, letting people people their presence. And level five, you're like, if you're really doing it right, like you said, it's exhausting because you are being just incredibly present with that person, letting them know that not only you're listening, not only that you're trying to internalize what they're talking about to really understand them, but I also think it helps you understand kind of your whole team, like showing them that you are having that empathy to everybody. And I'm going to venture to guess that the people who are leading based on one and two are the people who, this is again, another part of your book, uh, are the people who miss the blue flamers more than catch them because they're not paying attention. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and you'll find often that blue flamers have been sycophants to the people who are making decisions about promotions anyway. Right. And so it, that's what I meant by this systemic feeding of itself. Once you create that environment, that's how everybody thinks you're supposed to get by. And so John Doe promotes Billy because Billy is, has always been there for John Doe and saying that John Doe's all his decisions are great. And so Billy now becomes a boss before his time. And he starts to look down line and, and look for other people that are going to be sick offense for him. And those are the people that are usually promoted. But the Blue Flamers are always going to be problematic. And you're right. When they're listening, when the decision makers are listening at levels one and two, they've missed it. Blue Flamers don't come out of it nowhere. Right. You know, there, there are telltale signs all over the place if we choose to slow down and take a look. So do you think sometimes, so just uh, to define this and I'll, I'll define it in my way and please correct me is that for those that are listening that might not have read the book yet, the blue flamers are the kind of people that, that, that get promoted maybe too soon or aren't ready for it. Um, and they're doing it because they, to reference another book, they're trying to be, or they're looking to be runners, but they're really joggers right there. They're putting on a good show, but they might not have the depth of information, the depth of skill level in order okay. to do it, but because they're putting on the show, they're getting promoted. Was nope. that pretty clear? Is that right? Yeah. That, that, that's, uh, the blue flamer analogy comes from the rocket taking off yeah. the launch pad. Um, the, the flame coming out of the back end of it is blue because it's trying to haul tail and get into orbit as, as quickly as possible. And those people who get promoted rapidly within their organizations, I refer to as blue flamers. And by and large, they don't spend a lot of time at one level before getting promoted to the next. And so there comes a lack of institutional and, um, and, and environmental acumen 
And so they know that they're viewed as being inexperienced. They know that they're viewed as being um, a, a, a favorite child within the organization. Yeah. And so they tend to make up for it with a heavy handed management style because they know that there are people that are looking at them going, she doesn't have the experience. He didn't put his time in. Um, I've been here for 20 years and you're going to come in here after being here for five years and tell me that I should be doing X, Y, and Z. And so right off the bat, while I appreciate ambition, they're doing themselves a disservice. And not only are they doing themselves a disservice, the people who are making the decisions to elevate them are doing the, the organization a disservice. It's interesting. I, I don't, I didn't think about this until you were just saying that, but uh, based upon that analogy and that, that process, it almost seems like the authority that they're given, it actually creates the toxic ego. Not that they have the ego first, like they, they're doing that whole pressing through using the blue flaming, trying to get as fast as they possibly can up the ladder. But because other people are allowing it, because the toxic leadership ahead of them is allowing it, that authority that they're given creates the toxic ego and therefore, it gets even bigger. And then there, there's your failure. I, I guess I was thinking of it before is that it goes ego first, the the authority second, then failure. But really, it can be when people get authority and it's not earned, it's not respected by themselves, not just the people around them, then that can become a ego as a defensive mechanism and then create that failure. Right. That's right. That's right. Because at the end of the day, when, when somebody challenges your station in life, what does that do for you? Yeah, I don't care who you are and what you do. When somebody challenges your station in life, you get defensive. When you are defensive, boom, negative emotions are now in your brain. Mm. And you're going to do, you know, we've got we've got that bundle of nerves at the base of our brain. The amygdala, that's 75 percent of the real estate is geared towards threats and negatives. Now that thing has been activated. And so what do we do when it's activated? The one or two responses, we either fight or we run. Yep. And so when you're the boss, you can't run. So what are you going to do? You're going to fight and in a figurative way, in a figurative way, you're going to fight, which means sure. lashing, lashing out, which means do it because I said so. How right. dare you question my authority? You know, it, all of that starts to come into play. Why? Because you felt threatened that someone had the audacity to suggest we might be able to do this another way. So let me ask you a question then as I'm thinking about that, like the, the do it because I said so. I remember as a dad, right? I, I don't know if you have any right. children. Yep. I so do. I remember I remember doing that as a kid, as, as a young dad, right? Like, do it because I said right. so. And even my kids were like, that's not a good enough reason. <laughs> right? And right. Right. I'm trying to press that authority, right? And that ego there. Right now in our environment, I'd just like to get your opinion on this, especially with what we were t kind of touching on earlier with what's happening within law enforcement, right? There's that it almost feels like it can be a generational uh, staff infection, if you will, right through throughout our our um, I, I, I call it staff infections inside of my businesses because I don't call them. I don't like calling people staffs. Nobody wants this to be a staff. It's an infection. Nobody wants. Right. So right. We're, we're team members. And so every once in a while, though, you do get a staff infection. And sometimes that staff infection can actually bleed throughout and actually go up to upper management. So how much of some of the challenges and many challenges maybe that you've faced, especially in the business world, leadership world, come from a, a generational ego authority failure problem as opposed to, uh, oh, this just sprouted, sprouted up out of nowhere. I didn't really see this coming, right? The next generation behind them. There, 
my guess, my point is, are they being led to do that because they're told that's a better way to do it and that's what they're seeing? Or is it just because they happen to, you know, get through the ranks? Well, I, I think um, whatever's coming up generally, generationally behind you, mm-hmm. there are telltale signs all over the place. There, you, we know it's coming. The problem is we fail to acknowledge it. We fail to articulate it. We recognize it all of the time. And, and this goes back to our use of tactical empathy. Our mm-hmm. use of tactical empathy is to always find the motivation behind the behavior and to go on a deeper level, a deeper dive to find out what's what's pushing the decision, what's pushing the behavior, what's pushing the statement. Well, the same thing can be said about um, people's view of leadership from generation to generation. We all know what that next generation of leader is going to look like because we raised them, right? And if we just pay attention, they're screaming what's important to them, what they value. Because at the end of the day, I don't care who you are, you got to get your, you got to get your head around what's important to the next generation. Right. What do they value? There are people right now that I talk to on a regular basis that say I hate dealing with millennials. Well, why? Mm-hmm. They've got they've got wants, desires, and needs just like everybody else. That's right. And the 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 effectiveness of a leader is found in their ability to pivot their ability to be flexible in the moment and the days of us being able to say, because I said so are gone. Yeah, for sure. This, these generations coming up behind us, you can, they want, they've had everything explained to them. So they're not going to get to adulthood and, and all of a sudden don't need any explanation. They need to understand why are you moving the water cooler from that point of the office, that point in the office to that point in the office. That's what's important to them. And yeah. we knew that all along. And so rarely does anything or should anything surprise us because if we just slow down and pay attention, the writing is is pretty much on the wall. Well, speaking of surprises then, how how often are you surprised when you go into cuz you with the Black Swan, Swan Group you guys are are training leaders, CEOs from highest level companies all over the country, all over the world really. What what still surprises you when you're talking to a leader that they do something you're like, really? Like that seems almost basic, or is there anything that really surprises you? Uh I'm surprised at how many shouting matches occur. Really? In in the corporate world. I, I'm surprised at how downright rude some of them can be. Um, that's surprising to me. Um, and I've heard it from, I, I've heard it from the tech sector. I've heard it from healthcare. I've heard it from, um, travel and leisure. I hear it all the time. So that's really what surprises me. You guys in the, in the corporate world yell at each other more than hostage takers and hostage negotiators do. Well, that's what I was going to ask, right? Cause you can't do that. You can't have mm-hmm. that type of flare up if you will and 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 here's here's an interesting anecdotal story we're always looking for new black swans to round out our training cadre and we approached a guy who used to be an fbi agent he now works in the kidnap and ransom business uh for uh an insurance company and we talked about what who we were and what we did 
and he had previous hostage and kidnap negotiations experience. And um, we invited him to come check us out and possibly join our team. And he said, mm, I don't think I want to do that. My brother-in-law works for a large tech company who shall remain nameless. And he talks to me about the negotiations that he gets into and how uh, how he, they try to manipulate and beat down the other side. And we, we use aggressive tactics on the other side. And he goes, it's, it's a slimy world. And I don't want to get involved with uh, perpetuating that slimy world of corporate negotiations. I'd rather do what I'm doing, which is now get your head around this, Dino. This is what he's telling us. He's telling us I would rather deal with a sociopath who has a hostage tied to a tree in the jungle <laughs> on a sat phone than I would in the, the corporate CEO of a company. Yeah. Wow. That does. So, so could you, uh, I mean, can you empathize with that? Did you agree with that? Like, yeah, I could say it's kind of crazy. Like, have you been in that many crazy situations like that? Um, in talking, I haven't been, you know, for lack of a better term, mediating any type of uh, oh, okay. internal dispute like that. But I have heard from people who are suffering under that scourge that this goes on. It's 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 not the exception. It's pretty much the rule. Wow, that's interesting. That is so interesting that it's that toxic and crazy that way. Well, okay. So speaking of communication, one of the areas that I wanted to focus on when I was going through the book and I wanted to make sure I pull out is, you know, one of the I have a lot of conversations with my doctors about how to say something, what to say, how to communicate better with their team members, uh, how to get their point across, maybe even uh, if they don't have a lot of time to sit down and have long conversations with them, but that it comes across in a way that the team gets enrolled into the same idea of them and that they're going to, maybe they have to work a couple longer hours, especially after COVID just happened or anything mm -hmm. like that. Um, but one of the challenges is that, they don't do a really good job with setting up the conversation. I always say that the, the best conversations are in the setup, right? How you set up that conversation. When I walk into my wife and she's doing something, and I just start talking to her and she's in the middle of something. It's probably not going to go well because I'm interrupting her life. But when I come in and say, hey, do you have a quick moment for me to ask you a few questions? And she can say yes or no, then, then we can actually have a conversation. We're setting up that conversation for success. In mm -hmm. the book, you talk about the importance of, especially when it comes to critical or crucial or maybe uh, well, critical or crucial conversations, employee reviews, uh, bad uh, news that has to be delivered. You talk about denying the negative, the not deny the negative. That's what I should have said. Nice. So explain a little bit about that and how that helps set up the conversation for at least possible success. Well, the denying of a negative is actually what is going to reinforce the negative. When right. you say a denial of the negative is, if I were to say, um, Dino, I got to share something with you. I don't want you to think I'm being a jerk. What's going to follow that sentence? I'm totally, whatever you say, I'm thinking, okay, you're going to tell me a jerk about this thing. Yeah, I'm going to you're going to totally be a jerk about this thing. That yeah. is that's what's called denying the negative. Right. So two millimeter shift instead of saying, I don't want you to think I'm being a jerk. The two millimeter shift is you're going to think that I'm being a jerk. You see what, what? I dropped off there? I dropped off the I don't want. So the focus is not on me right. anymore. 
Okay, so so Derek, why this was a big like, so there are certain things in the book that I went, oh my gosh, I've been doing this wrong for all these years. And it was what I was taught. So I mentioned uh, there's a book, Crucial Conversations. There's a book, you know, Critical Conversations, same type of idea. And the pattern for that, as you were talking about the repetitions that I had learned from that and I've been teaching is, hey, I don't want you to think this. I don't want you to think that I don't see the hard work that you're putting in and I want to think that because it's taking away the negative. But just that little shift in the way that you said that of instead of I don't want you to think and turning it to, you know, you're going to think that I don't see this. You're going to think that it was huge for me. Like I seriously in the car, I was driving from Arizona to California to Utah and I literally had to rewind it a couple of times. Like, listen, and I woke, woke up my wife basically and she didn't care, <laughs> but I thought it was exciting. So I thought I'd tell her anyway, that's yeah. so crucial. Yeah. It's uh, and it's, it's a small thing, but in all of the use of these skills during course of a, of a, of a tough conversation, we're looking for their incremental effect. Not yeah. one of these skills is going to, is not the one swing of the ax that's going to bring the tree down. It's, it's, Think of it in terms of um, regular negotiations are like Mike Tyson. Hmm. One round knockout, we're looking for the, the big punch. Black Swan negotiation, it's more like Floyd Mayweather. And I go we're just going we're, we're to go all 15 rounds. Yeah. I'm going to bob and weave and just outpoint you because that's what I do. So that's in using the Black Swan method, we're looking for the cumulative effect of all of the skills. So things like you just said, not denying the negative and, and, and changing that denial into a preemptive label is just one of many techniques that you would use throughout the entire conversation in order to move the needle in the direction that you want it to go. Yeah, and it's great. I Seriously, it's one of those things that now I'm gonna start using on my repetition uh, repetitions again to change that because the pattern in my head is I don't want you to think. And here's again, just that one thing that for me was really awesome was I try to create, even in my copywriting, even in uh, if I'm writing a template or a speech for or a script for someone, really try to take out the eyes as much as possible. So that's not about me, right? I don't want you to think that. And that was actually one of the things that in my head kind of twisted a little bit was realizing that it's okay to say, you know, you're probably going to, you're, you, you might think this it's most likely to, to actually put it back on them to let them know it really is about them and you care about them. And so yeah. that's why you're bringing it out at the very beginning. I mean, the conversation right. you had about getting the money from the, um, it wasn't the FBI, it was a SWAT team Yeah, from the SWAT team to bring that you know speaker in. It was just, it's, I almost wanted to go back and like write the script out because it's masterful of using all of the things we're going to talk about in just a moment as well. But starting off with that, you know, you're probably going to think this and you probably feel like that. And I think there's a lot of people like that. I can do that in your home, home right? With your family, with yeah. your kids sitting down. Yeah. And now you guys are going to be solely upset about the fact that we're not going to Disneyland this year because of COVID. And like to be able to start with that is so, so yeah. powerful. And, and, and the, the, uh, the biggest value, I think, or one of the biggest values is it makes you look like a mind reader. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, because you're saying what they probably are thinking, feeling, and they haven't spoken it yet. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, the first thought in their mind is, how dialed in is this guy? 
Yeah. That he he's picking up on this and I haven't said anything yet. And the other thing is the other the other big uh, value for this preemptive style of labeling, otherwise known as the accusations audit, is delivered correctly. You can send them to the far end of the fear spectrum, and it makes anything that you're going to say subsequent to that a relief. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually just yeah. did that in a couple of emails today. I love that piece about like making it bigger. So it's like, oh, you know, it's not that big deal. It's okay. They have that. Well, here's the thing. It combines so many things because we just talked about a moment, a moment ago being empathetic, like letting people feel that you you have empathy. What else could they think? But wow, this person really is trying to at least, or they do right. get me. That's empathy. Right. That's right. And 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 with the use of empathy, uh, you know, it, it it does a lot for you. But probably the most significant thing that it does for you is that it encourages reciprocity. Yes, because you gave it first, you can call it in. Yep. Later, we were just talking about this on one of my mastermind groups the other day about I'm a huge Robert Cialdini fan and the idea of that law of reciprocity, right? That sometimes mm -hmm. we think of it as a physical thing, right? I'm going to give you this physical thing, so therefore you feel that. But oftentimes it, it can be just that mental thing that that I gave you space. I gave you freedom. I gave you empathy. You're going to want to give that back to me. Exactly right. Love exactly it. Right. Exactly love right. Exactly right. I'm telling you, I really enjoyed this. Like I really had a great time. I can tell. And I hope you had a good time like writing it. And I know I let's I've written four books and I know how much you put into to writing books, but you just really did a great job. So the next section we go into really spoke to me because I I have actually have had a, have a certification in body language reading and, and conversation. And when you went into that whole conversation around the words, tone and body language, it just put mm -hmm. it all together for me. And I was actually, after reading um, uh, Never Split the Difference, I was kind of trying to weave that into that conversation into a lot of the things around labeling and mirroring and, and the uh, accusations audits and tactical empathy and all that stuff. And you put it all together in just that, like, I think it's three different chapters right there in those three little sections. That was great. So let's talk about real fast how, where people get it wrong when it comes to communication and uh, negotiation, if you will, in those three areas, their words, their tone, and their body language. Or I loved how you called it kinesthetic. Well, the, the, the um, they fail to realize how much data you get out of facial expressions and body language. And the reality is, you get more out of facial expressions, body language, and the tone of voice of the other person than you do from the content of what they're actually saying. What you yeah. say is not as important. In fact, how you say it is five times more important than what is said. So where people get it wrong is, you know, their, their, their outer voice will betray their inner voice. If they are not calm, if they're not at peace with what they're about to share, it's going to get betrayed in their outer voice. Your, your tone, your voice is your number one tool. I mean, we can take all of the black swan skills and I can give them to you and say, go out and conquer. And if your tone and your delivery stinks, you're going to fall right on your face because your voice will cause an emotional reaction on the part of the person receiving the message. That's the bad news. The good news is 
You control whether that emotional response is negative or positive, just based on your tone, your delivery, your cadence, your projected sincerity, your genuineness. People can see through that. They can see through that and they know when it's coming from a good place and they know when you're trying to to manipulate. So you want to make sure that, you know, what's coming out of your mouth is congruent with what your body is saying. You know, I, I always love watching the interview where the person goes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I and, totally and love it. Right no, no, yeah, you could totally yeah. come over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to have you over. And, there's and you a great inner. We we talk about shoulders a lot because shoulders give away a lot of uncertainty, right? And there's a great interview of OJ Simpson, right? Who's going to do a podcast or something, and he's like, "I'm going to tell you everything you wanted to know," you know. And it's just like, "No, you're not." <laughs> like you can totally see exactly yeah. that. So yeah. let me ask I got you. Hide. Uh, yeah, I got nothing to hide. Uh, when when it comes to that, how much does it? This is on, kind of almost on a personal level, but it, it it weaves into what I try to teach with my doctors so often is. When you call into a place and you know that person on the other end of the line, like you, all you have is their tone and their words, right? You don't get to see their body. How much does it drive you crazy when you can just tell that person's either reading a script or just going through the motions or filling in the blanks for the questions that they're asking you? Do you ever do anything about it? <laughs> um, good question. Um, it, the, the script reading is it's it's usually evident within the first three or four words you right. can tell your 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 intuition your intuition is going crazy um and the problem with sounding rote rehearsed or robotic is you fail to make the connection you fail to make the other person like you and People are six times more likely to do business with someone they like based on no other criteria whatsoever. Yeah. And it starts with your tone and your ability to to connect. And if that is hindered at the beginning of the conversation, you're toast. You're toast. You're never you're never going to recover from that. And so I can pick it up right away. So the, the cautionary tale to, to to those of you who are listening is what I said earlier, transparent projected sincerity, genuineness. They want to hear you speak from here as opposed to your brain, from the heart as opposed to the brain. I often tell my doctors that the challenge is, so I call the their phone receptionist, whoever I, I use the word director of first impressions because they're the ones who are in charge of the impression of that entire office. And when that person comes into the office, they're they might not even see that person, right? They're going to the other, the salesperson, the treatment coordinator, the doctor. So you better have somebody there who is creating the first impression that you want them to create. So having the right tone, the volume pitch, all that is, is mm -hmm. so crucial. Uh, I kind of chuckled when you were talking about that going, I, I know why this, this obviously obvious to you, but as you were saying, that, I went, Oh yeah. When you, you talked about repetitions earlier, right? Getting the repetitions and to learn how to use that stuff. But when you are going out to a scene and there's a hostage situation happening, mm -hmm. you have the tools in the toolbox, but you're not, you can't be scripted because they're going to pick up on that. You've got to be as genuine as possibly can knowing, all right, they said this. Now I need to pull out my tool to do this. Here's some tactical empathy. Here's some, that that talk about thinking on your feet. That's fascinating to me. I, I this yeah. is something I thought of when you said that. Well, here's the thing: is at the end of the day, 
And this is what I told my, my team members. At the end of the day, I would tell them, you're, remember, you're in a conversation. Don't ever lose fact of the, that you're in a conversation. It's just two people chopping it up on the phone. And the skill execution will occur where it's natural for you. But first and foremost, just get on the phone and talk to her. Get on the phone and talk to her. And the skills, you'll be able to, to pull the skills out when they feel the most appropriate. And so keeping in that in the forefront of your mind when you're dealing with a vendor, or you're dealing with a patient, or you're dealing with a colleague, or you're dealing with your team members, just remember you're having a conversation. And if you rehearse it and you go through repetitions enough, like talk about, because one of the biggest challenges to get team members to do is role playing, right? Is to get out there. And my whole point is if you do it enough, I promise you will then find it more natural as you're doing it in real life when that situation comes up. Uh, you do the repetitions to learn how to do things like labeling correctly, mirroring correctly, accusations, audits, tactical empathy, all of those things. Not that you're, like you said earlier, not that one thing is going to you know, topple over the entire conversation, but all those things in different situations, areas, mm -hmm. knowing when you can pull them up is where you're going to have the most success. Yeah. And, and when you're working with your, with your team members, when it comes to role play, you know that they have a problem with it. You should be setting up each request with an accusations audit. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that I'm telling you, that's awesome. Let's, let's talk, let's finish up. We know we got to close up in just a, a few moments. Thank you again for your time. I mean, I'm telling you, it's like I'm talking to – I don't get starstruck very often. I've, I used to work in Hollywood. Oh, and and oh, so thanks. I want to really – I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And I don't I don't care if any of my listeners like this a lot. I'm having a good time. So it's all that matters. Um, all right. Here's my favorite. This is my favorite thing. Let, well, I, let me ask you this. Why is getting to know more important than yes? Because this, this is a mind freak for people. Sell for so I teach a lot of sales processes. Mm -hmm. I teach people how to do sales and getting the idea that no, 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 you have to get a whole bunch of trial yeses or you have to get them to say yes, like you say in the book, three times. I mean, I started laughing three times so that they'll want to say yes and then talk about body language part of it, right? Add, add the nod to it as you're talking so that they will want to say yes too. And mm -hmm. I love your setup of this. So please explain to my listeners why you want them to say no more than you want them to say yes. Simply put, yes is commitment. Yes is obligation. People don't like being obligated to something they haven't volunteered for. Mm. And you driving for a yes is involuntary. And people know, they feel it in their bones when you're pushing them for a yes. And they've been sold to before with people by people pushing for a yes. So they know that at the end of that rainbow is a trap. And saying yes encroaches on people's autonomy. When I call you on the phone and I say, hey, Dino, do you have a couple of minutes? It's clear that I want you to say yes. And what's happening in your brain is, A, what's a couple of minutes? Yes. B, if I have a couple of minutes, do I want to talk to you? <laughs> C, if I have a couple of minutes and I want to talk to you, do I want to talk about what you want to talk about? All of those three in a second go through your brain. Yep. And even then, it, it gives you pause. 
you it gives you pause to, about saying yes because you feel like now I'm 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 painting you into a corner. People call them micro agreements. People call them tie downs. Yep. The fact that you call something a tie down, tie down should exactly. scream should scream at you that this is not voluntary. Right. And so two millimeter shift change any yes oriented question into a no oriented question. Will you take this out of the contract? Get switched to are you against mm-hmm. removing this? Can I sit in that reserve section of the restaurant? Would it be a bad idea if we sat over there? Is now a bad time? Is now a bad time? Have you given up on? Yes. All of those are, are great, no-oriented questions. And I'm continually amazed at what people will agree to by saying no that you know they wouldn't agree to by saying yes. Yeah. It just offers them a little bit more protection. And yeah. again, that's what we're trying to do. See it from their side. My two favorite things. I actually think I wrote Chris about this and uh, after I read uh, Never Split the Difference is those we talked about earlier, the extremeness and then the getting to know is that when I go to hotel rooms, uh, I did this right after I got done reading the uh, Never Split the <laughs> Difference is I called up and I said, okay, you're going to absolutely kill me when you hear me ask you this or when I ask you this. And the girl literally said, she goes, oh, no, what'd you do? Because like, you know, these, they're thinking that extreme, right? And I said, yeah. And, yeah. Then I, and then I said, would you be opposed to a later checkout time than normal? And she goes, oh, no, that's fine. And I yeah. said, what's the latest you can give me? And she gave me a four o'clock checkout time. Wow. Normally from a, a 11 is normal. So I, I was sold right away. I actually, I think I put down the book and did it right after that. But I do it all the time now, that extremeness of it and then going to the, going for the no. I probably have gotten too much in the habit of using would you be opposed to more than anything, right? I, I can, I need to, I need to, I need to do some more reps on different ways to say it, but all I'm saying, even my wife kind of gets sick of me saying, so would you be opposed to us leaving at six o'clock? Right. And yeah. she's, okay, I get it. I get it. Yes, we can go. Yeah. Or uh, another one is, are you against is a great, are one you against, it's, it's, are, are you against or simply, how bad of a position am I going to put you in if I ask for this? Oh, ask? that's a good one. How bad of a position am I going to put you in if I ask you for this? Oh, that's really good. I like that. That's awesome. Okay. So, Derek, like this is awesome. And I, I really want to, I want to respect your time and just say thank you again so much for time. Before we do, let me put up my little banner here for you. So, people, everybody, I definitely want you to go and get Derek's book right now. You can go to Amazon or Audible. I got mine on Audible because everybody who listens to that podcast knows I listen to books all the time. I'm very much an auditory listener. But this book actually made me stop and take notes. And this is just my notes for for the show, right? This is just my notes I have for the show. I have a ton of other notes that I'm going to be training and teaching on, teaching a six-hour class this Saturday or this uh, Friday on sales to a corporation that I'm going to incorporate some of these things in there because it just makes so much sense. And uh, I just want to thank you so much for being a part of the show. As we do in tradition on this show, at the very end of the show, I have six questions that I ask every guest. Would it be okay if I do the, the rapid fire, asking you questions off t- then the first rapid answer? Rapid fire. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's do it. All right. When it comes to leadership, what do you think is the most expensive thing that leaders are missing in their businesses? The most expensive thing? Yes. Tactical empathy. 
Tactical empathy is the most expensive thing. Okay, what is and, a book? And here's and, yeah. and here's why it's here's why it's expensive. Right? It's costing you human capital. People are not leaving jobs, they're leaving bosses and they're leaving bosses yes. because they can't display the empathy. Uh, with, what's the number one? There's a study that there's a couple of studies actually show the number one reason why people leave their jobs is not feeling appreciated. Yep. Not feeling appreciated. Wow. What's a book? And of course, we want everybody to go get Ego Authority Failure. It's available. You guys go get it right now. Uh, but is there another book that you believe every leader should be reading without fail? Uh, Leif Babin, Jocko Willink, Extreme Ownership. Oh, nice. You're a Jocko fan. Well, of course you're a Jocko fan. I'm a Jocko fan. He's easy. Uh, yeah, he's awesome. That's great. Um, okay. In my book, my very first book called, it's called The Practice Rx. And I focus a lot on team culture and team performance as the foundation for business growth. When you are talking with these business leaders, what do you see as their biggest challenge that they're facing with their teams and their office culture? Um. Lack of transparency, lack of inclusion. Lack of transparency and lack of inclusion. That's right. And and not not creating that environment where people um, think they have not only the right, but the responsibility to speak up. Mm. I, I didn't want, when I, the, when I ran my hostage negotiations team, we would have timeouts during these hostage situations where we would get together and we talk about where we were, where we are, where we want to go. The time for me to learn that you have a, a problem with the direction that we're taking is not after the event is over because it does us no good then. I created the environment where I wanted that input in the moment. And so that's where I think a lot of leaders are falling down now is because they think that they have to be the smartest person in the room or at least appear to be the smartest person in the room, which leads them to not um, soliciting information, advice, ideas from highly talented people. Yeah. And there's, and, and you know, they got a full cesspool, if you will, or, or I, I, let's say a swimming pool full of really great talent inside of their offices and they're not listening. Uh, yep. Next, next question is pretty simple. How can people get a hold of you if they wanted to reach out or find out more about you? I have the black swan LTD down here.com. Is there another way that you would have? Are you on Facebook? Are you on LinkedIn? I'm on I'm on LinkedIn. Yeah, I'm I'm on LinkedIn. So you can reach out to me, connection request, and as long as your profile doesn't look like you're a weirdo, I'll likely honor it. Oh, that so makes me feel good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, number five is what's the best advice? And I know it's a difficult one, but what's the best advice you've ever received in life or in business? I think I mentioned it earlier. Stick to your training. Mm. Love it. So true. Stick to your training. <sighs> yeah. that's. It's funny how like our egos really do. I had a mentor once used to say, the only thing that's going to screw this up is your better idea. Mm -hmm. And he would give us a formula on how to do stuff. And he would just stand up and say, you guys, stop trying to have a better idea. It works. Do what it's, it's the, it's the recipe for the cake you said you wanted do it the way it says, you'll get it. That's right. That's right. Okay. Last question. What's the best resource or tool? Does not have to do with expenses or anything. The best resource or tool that you think every business owner should use to grow their practice? The best 
tool or resource to grow their practice. Um, this is going to sound trite and, and cliche, but you mentioned it earlier and it's investing in each member of the team. Yes. You want to, you want to grow your practice or business. You create that environment that where people, you know, we use that term buy-in where people willingly will do anything that you ask them to do. Happy team, happy work life. So true. So true. Jeez, man, I can't believe this hour went by as fast as it did. Derek, I just want to thank you so much for not only, first of all, thank you for writing your book. Like I know sometimes you have, I know if you're anything like me, if there's a lot of people I talk to, sometimes you get the like, well, you know, who's going to read my book? And, And when you put it out there, it's like, having your baby judged, right? It's like, here's exactly. my baby. Like, don't judge my baby too harshly, right? And so yeah. just thank you for writing the book. It, it really means a lot. I think it's a very uh, something that's going to help out so many people. It already has and will continue to do so. And it's a legacy that you're leaving far beyond your years on this planet. So I really, really wow. appreciate that. That's too kind. Thank you. Uh, and then again, thank you for your hour being here, everybody. I hope you had an amazing time being here. I hope you got a lot of information out of this. As always, our goal is to bring you the best practices possible for your company and always to help you be more proactive, more productive, and more profitable in all areas of your life and business. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you on the next episode. Thanks, Dino. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks so much again for listening to the Propreneur Podcast. We really appreciate your support. If you haven't subscribed already, please make sure you do so. Also, if you feel like you might be a good fit for our podcast as a guest or know somebody who you think would be, go ahead and email us at dino at dinowatt.com. Again, thanks for support. We'll see you on the next episode.